Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. Today's guest is someone I learned about through her TV show when I was 18 called Rich Girls. I then discovered her book, Bite Me, How Lyme Disease Stole My Childhood, Almost Killed Me, and Made Me Crazy. Allie Hilfiger is an artist, designer, writer, and the daughter of fashion mogul and entrepreneur Tommy Hilfiger. She's taken control of her health in a way that I think our listeners can really learn a lot from. So welcome, Allie. Thank you, Harper. It's great to be here. So happy to have you here, native New Yorker. Yeah, baby. So tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from other than New York. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I am a sort of a spiritual being experiencing this human thing. And uh, I live in Los Angeles now, born and raised in New York, went to high school in New York, lived here for my 20s. Where'd you go to high school? I went to the professional children's school. Okay, I know I was, the name. Yeah, it, it's it's PCS. It's sort yeah. of like the fame school, if you will. I was um, acting on Broadway or off Broadway. It's kind of a little half and half. <laughs> it was a little half and half at the time, but it was eventually on Broadway. And so I had to ha- go to a school besides Catholic school that would allow me to go to rehearsals and do pr- eight performances a week. Got it. And so what are you doing now in L.A.? I am designing. I am raising a daughter. And helping manage my husband's art career. Love that. And we'll get into all those things. But let's look back a little bit to um, you had severe symptoms of Lyme disease when you were growing up. What were those symptoms? Well, I was bitten by a tick when I was seven years old. And the way that when we didn't really know that it was Lyme disease, we, we got the tick tested, but the results came back inconclusive. Doctors said it was growing pains. They said there was nothing wrong with me. I had joint pain, headaches, fatigue. And the symptoms progressed. We went to several doctors throughout my childhood and teens. One doctor said it was multiple sclerosis. One doctor said it was rheumatoid arthritis. Another, of course, said it was fibromyalgia. And the symptoms proceeded to get worse and worse. And they grew from dealing with both physical, with incredible joint pain, nausea, headaches, into neurological symptoms. My eyesight would go, you know, sort of symptoms of dyslexia and attention deficit and retention issues became extremely magnified and amplified to the point where I really just thought I was dumb. (laughs) And all the while, I was functioning and working and pushing myself in ways outside of school that maybe no other kid my age was doing. And it was very confusing because, you know, sitting in a math class, I really couldn't understand what the teacher was saying. In history class, I would, you know, memorize everything and understand what they were saying and the next day forget all of it. So it was very complicated and confusing. And, you know, dealing with physical symptoms as a kid, you really can't really take much. So thank God at 16 years old, I discovered weed. And that helped so much. It helped. Such a New Yorker. Such a New Yorker. <laughs> such a New Yorker. At first, it was just to have fun, right? Yeah. I was like, "Oh, cool, weed. Like, let's like get a little stoned and like dance, whatever. Let's listen to Led Zeppelin." 
But then I discovered it was helping with the nausea and it was helping with the joint pain. It was helping me sleep. It was helping with the headaches. And from 7 to 16, we still don't have a diagnosis. Still no diagnosis. Now, when I was about 17, I produced a feature film. And then that led me into producing um, a television show on MTV called Rich Girls. Remember it Which well. they forced me to star in, which I did not want to do. I did this very reluctantly, mind you. But it was a big career opportunity. Producing and creating a, a, a TV show on network TV, let alone MTV, was a huge deal. But um, the stress of that, the stress and pressure of that um, really exasperated the Lyme. And it was one of those things where it was like the perfect storm. My parents were separating. My mother was going through a tough time. My father was going through a tough time. I was the eldest of four kids. I, you know, was definitely self-medicating with that weed, <laughs> which, thank God, but I think that that also contrib contributed to the ultimate nervous breakdown that I experienced at 18 years old. And the nervous breakdown was obviously, you know, definitely the Lyme disease infiltrating and shutting down half of my brain and my body. Because at this point, the Lyme disease was in almost every single cell and shutting down the oxygen uh, supply to my brain. But along with everything else, it really was the perfect storm. And it was very confusing. So I did end up in a hospital, and it was just one of the scariest, darkest times of my life. It was just so surreal. It was like waking up in your worst nightmare, in my worst nightmare. But, you know, I've always had a very strong, sort of strangely strong core spiritual backbone, I'll call it. It's nothing specific. It's just this knowing that I will always be okay, always be taken care of, and I'll always be guided in the right direction, and that I'll always get through difficult situations. And I think it's because I was raised with so much love. My parents smothered us with love. You know, they worked a lot. There were a lot of issues, of course, because everybody does, but the amount of love that ran throughout our household and continues to run through our household and our family, I think was sort of the thread that created that backbone. And I relied on that. And I knew that this depression and the, you know, the experience in the hospital and the physical symptoms, I knew that there was no way that it could last forever. That would be impossible. How did you know that? That's the thing. I just, it was, that's just how I'm built. I just knew that it was impossible Feelings don't last forever. It's just physically impossible. I knew that every day would be really difficult, but I knew that there was some sort of end. I kind of saw a light at the end of a tunnel, and I just kept my eye on that light. Now, after I got out of the hospital, I stayed there for like three or four months. It's a long time. And I was protected. You know, I was safe. I was protected. I was structured. I had structure. I had a schedule. When I got out, I, I went to the psychiatrist's office and, you know, I was still dealing with a lot of these physical symptoms, night sweats at this point. You know, I, I couldn't make decisions. Uh, the memory thing was getting worse. Recalling words. I mean, I'd stare at someone and just think, I need to say something to you, but I can't get the words out. It's really a scary feeling. can't even imagine how scary that's got to be, especially at that age. Yeah. 
it's really frustrating too because you know you're smart. I mean, I have a lot going on. I'm a very like bright, lively, energetic person, and to not function the way I know I can is so infuriating. So anyway, the psychiatrist said, "Listen, first of all, th- this whole breakdown that you experienced—it's you're not—it's not a mental illness. I, I know that she's was working for 35 years." not a mental illness. You're going through something very temporary. I'm trying to pinpoint what it is. And How did it feel hearing that, knowing that it was that she thought it was temporary? I knew that also because I knew I knew I wasn't mentally ill. I, I, I would have sort of known, you know. Yeah. I was a stable and happy enough person to know that this was just a really strange, fucked up experience. But, but that it was only going to be a period of time, yeah. not a lifelong thing. No, I knew, I knew it was going to be a lifelong thing. Um, but she said, you know, with all of these symptoms, I wonder if you have Lyme disease. And so, you know, I've been tested for Lyme disease a few times. Doctors at Yale, Harvard, universities in Boston, Connecticut, you know, all these places. And they said I'm that the levels of Lyme are not positive enough to properly diagnose. And she said, that's bullshit. Go to a, go to this doctor because he can read in between the lines and really look at your blood in a new way that no one else ever has before. He knows how to read between sort of the, the regulatory lines and see what's really going on. So I went to this doctor. I told him the whole story. And he asked me questions that like I was sort of like, how did you know that? And like fear of being cold, like weird stuff. Anyway, he took my blood. Two weeks later, called me back, said... There's no question. I mean, the blood tests for Lyme and Bibesia, the co-infection, which is like malaria, they were off the charts, literally off of his, his charts. You couldn't even like measure them because they were so high. So that started me on this roller coaster of antibiotics, which I would take them, get really worse. It's called a Herxheimer, which is a flare up of the symptoms. It's basically that the antibiotics burning off the, the bugs and the, and the bugs inside of you sort of freaking out. And fighting back. But then you get, and then after a few weeks or a couple of months of being so deathly ill, like you can't even touch your hair, then you start slowly get, getting better. And then after six months, I felt sort of better and I'd go right back to work. I'd start painting and having art shows. I'd start styling musicians and going, you know, helping them organize their press tours. And then I'd get hit and get sick again. This cycle lasted for almost seven years. So interesting because there's so many things that are seven-year cycles. And when I got hit with this, one of the last sort of antibiotic cycles, I said to my dad, I don't think I can do this again. I just don't think I can do it. And he said, why don't you try something else? Why don't you try homeopathy? And I said, oh, my God, but that just takes so much discipline and so much time and it takes so much longer. And How did you know that? Had you had experienced homeopathy before? I No, I had not experienced homeopathy, but I had educated myself on it. And I'd spoken to others. I, I just knew that it was a longer process, that like one magic pill. I mean, it's not like the antibiotics were magic either. They actually did more damage than good, I'm sure. Anyway, I went to this German doctor and he, he said, I, I know how to fix you. I know that I can actually guarantee that I can help you, in fact. But you need to be willing to do the work. And he basically gave this amazing analogy of a house and doing a, a deep cleaning on a house. 
you do a very deep cleaning on the house and you sweep everything up and clean everything up, but then you're left with garbage bags full of shit. And then the mice come back. So unless you're able to do the deep cleaning and then remove the garbage and the debris and really clean under the rugs and roll up your sleeves and repaint. I mean, if you don't do that, you're never going to get better. So we did that. And my God, was that intense. And I'm, I have a needle phobia. So I had like 21 injections twice a week. I had infusions, uh, IV infusions. I had, they took my blood out, would spin it and then inject it back into me. I mean, the amount of needles that I had to do. Now I won't let a doctor get near me with a needle. I mean, really? yeah, I had a doctor a few weeks ago that tried to give me a B12 shot. I had my pants down and I was running around his office with my ass <laughs> bare, bare naked butt running around his office like a child. I mean, he'd get the needle. Ah, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'd run around. Go get the nurse. She'll help me. Ah, I can't do it. I mean, really flipped out. Wow. Really flipped out. Ugh. So anyway, that the detox process and then the boosting of the immune system along with homeopathics, diet, lifestyle change, meditation, you know, colonics, saunas, yoga, all of these healthy things, which a 20-something-year-old is just is difficult to do. And by the way, you know, from 19 to 29, I was you know, didn't drink a drop of alcohol, didn't smoke any weed, didn't smoke any cigarettes. I mean, I think when I was like 21, I smoked cigarettes. <laughs> but like, I ate really, really clean. Like, I really was like this 70-year-old, 70-year-old yogi hippie woman who was like the cleanest ever. Can you imagine? Well, I think it's just really rare. And I guess the question is, how did you decide to take this path? Did you get rid all of right. all of the medications and stop taking them entirely? Yes. Did this German doctor sort of start this path and then you started digging deeper into it? That's exactly right. I, the German doctor started me on this path. And I also, and this is what I tell patients today. Are you willing to go to any lengths to get healthy? And do you truly want to be healthy and have a full life? Are you willing to let go of victimhood? Are you willing to live at your highest potential? Are you willing to understand that you deserve to be well? You know, all of these questions are the most important questions to ask at the beginning of a wellness health journey, because if you're not willing to put that worth on yourself and that value and invest your, and it's really an investment. And that's what people kept reminding me. You know, you're investing in your future as a human. You're investing in your body, you're investing in your mind and your spirituality, you're, you're, you're creating a very strong vessel. And yeah, you're going to have to go through it for a few, four years or five years or whatever, but it'll be worth it. And they were right. So th this is really how I start conversations out with, with patients who are desperate and sick. And I think the those questions are so valuable to ask. And, you know, obviously in your situation, you said yes to all of them, but I think about my situation and... I wasn't willing to say yes through many, many years because I got comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. I was so used to being sick or not well entirely, but managing it to a certain extent mm -hmm. that I was like, eh, this is, this is fine. I'm okay. I can give things a shot here and there. Mm -hmm. But I think I still 
dabble and I'm not 100% at yes as I'd like to be. So it's interesting to think about those questions and how valuable they can be for people in navigating, do you want to be well? And what does well look like for you? Yes. And how do you get there? Yes. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Lola. Using natural products became a priority for me a few years ago, so I was thrilled when I discovered Lola. I'm super conscious of using natural products on my face, my body, and my hair, so why not be equally as conscious about the feminine care products I use? Unlike most major brands, Lola's products are 100% organic cotton with no added chemicals, fragrances, synthetics, or dyes, so I can feel confident that I'm using the safest products possible every month. Plus, with my Lola subscription, the products get delivered right to my door exactly when I need them. Lola is founded by women, for women, and they donate feminine care products to homeless shelters with each purchase. For 40% off all subscriptions, visit mylola.com and enter visible at the discount code when you place your first order. Again, that's mylola.com and enter visible as the discount code. So you mentioned how valuable the love in your family was. And I'm curious, given who your dad is, do you think that the treatment that you received from any of these doctors or anyone you saw was different because of who he is? No, I don't. I just think that I got an appointment faster. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> I got an appointment quicker and I didn't have to worry about how to pay for it, mm-hmm. which is something that I eventually, one of my ultimate goals is to create an affordable and effective treatment. Because one of the one of the biggest issues that, that I come across with patients is they can't afford some of these doctors. And it's completely ridiculous that they make it so expensive and inaccessible. I don't think that it's fair. But, you know, what I am able to provide from my experience for patients is something for free. And those are different writing exercises, a shift in mental attitude, choices with their diet, choices with the people that they hang out with, music that they listen to, figuring out how to make themselves laugh once a day, figuring out how to incorporate more love into their lives. You know, falling in love with with my husband, that was a huge turning point for me. You know, first of all, I learned how to love myself completely. And that was the first step. I didn't need anybody. I didn't want anybody. I didn't want a boyfriend. I didn't want anything. I wanted to... I love working, obviously. I love des- I love designing clothes. So I had this amazing company after the German doctor, and I learned really how to truly deeply love myself. And I didn't need anything but to design my clothes, have my little fashion shows, and just be happy with my friends. And I loved it. And then I met my husband, and I, I was like knocked upside of the head. And the amount of love that was brought into my life on top of the love I already had, I believe was truly and effectively healing. And once, and you know, then of course the stress of running a company kicked in and I had a really, really bad relapse, really, really bad. Oh my gosh. And it was so devastating because it was right after the last fashion presentation, the presentation we had at Milk Studios and Anna Wintour came. She came at the end of the presentation and I got to walk her through and she said, wow, you've come a long way. Well done. I was like, I mean, she left and I just buckled down and just sobbed. I was so, I felt so like, wow, I validated, you know? 
And a couple months later, I was rushed to hospitals and they found an aneurysm and I was so sick. My body was just so sick. I couldn't function. And I found Ayurvedic medicine. I mean, it went down a lot of interesting paths and it was great. I mean, it really was great, but I couldn't continue to run the company. And the most difficult part of that was closing the company down. Um, but my husband was right there with me. And he said, it's going to be okay. You'll you'll do it again one day. Let's just focus on getting you well. And we did. And we made the decision to move to California because, you know, the cold and the seasonal change and the mold and all of this was, was definitely affecting me. And just the stress of New York City. I mean, you walk out the door and it's like, Rah! I remember <laughs> listening to you on the WellBe podcast and you were talking about going to the Caribbean. Yeah. And you decided that you couldn't come back to mm -hmm. New York. And it stood out to me so much, obviously, as a native New Yorker. Mm -hmm. And then you moved to L.A. What was it about New York that was just like, I can't go back there? Was it the sick alley wanting to go to a new place to become a new healthy version of yourself? Maybe subconsciously. I've never re really thought about it that way. But when I was living in Mystique, I thought, you know, I've been going on this roller coaster of getting healthy and then getting sick again for too long. Maybe it has, you know, I do very well in the sun. I do very well. I have more energy. Yeah, I feel the same way. Right. I mean, even going to the grocery store in New York is stressful and overwhelming. And I just intuitively knew that I needed to change something and that being in the sun would not hurt. So I thought, all right, let's just try it. And actually, it was so funny because Steve, strangely enough, got a job offer to, in L.A. And we thought, this is it. This is meant to be. Packed up the car, drove across the country. By the way, I slept most of the way because <laughs> I was on heavy migraine medication. I mean, I was doing the homeopathic thing, but the migraines were so bad that I needed like real meds. And I like slept most of the way. Poor guy. And had I to drive up. the whole time. I know, he drove the whole time. Well, I did go to Dollywood. I went to Graceland. We went to the Grand Canyon. I mean, we had some fun for sure. But between those, you were sleeping. I was sleeping. He what was, was like, he listening to? Any idea? He, probably a lot of like NPR talk radio and books on tape. We bought some David Sidaris books. Okay. That's good stuff. We love to laugh. <laughs> anyway, um, that was a big turning point for me. And uh, I look back and just think, Oh my gosh, like how did I survive all of that? You know? I and that backbone of knowing that this too shall pass and knowing that I have the potential to live such an incredible, valuable life. You know, I have a lot to give back to people. I have a very privileged life and it would just be such a shame to spend it in bed. And I knew I wanted to help people. That's I really love making people happy and helping people. It's like I thrive on it. And so one of the motivations that like catalyzed me into sticking to the, with the program was knowing that one day I would write a book and help people. So in LA, I mean, I did everything. I did like, you know, transcendental meditation. I did like these different infusions. I did these different like Ayurvedic diets, like everything that I could. But when you say you did these things, how did you even discover them? How did you know that these were the places to check out? Right. So when I spoke to people, one person would say, oh, I have this really incredible doctor or this really amazing healer you should meet. And if my instinct felt good about it, I mean, really, you have to rely on your intuition. And if I walked into a doctor's office and I don't feel it, I'll just walk out, you know, or... If they tell, if I'd have a good feeling when the person was talking and I kind of 
would just call them the next day without really trying to call the doctor's office, but it just kind of happened. It would just be the right place. It, it, it was uh, very guided. I'm very guided, and, and I really rely on that as well. And not forced. It's not forced. It's not forced, but you want to know what is forced, is picking up the medication, is pick, doing it the, every morning, two hours before you eat, not doing mint toothpaste. I mean, all of these boring things. That is hard. It's hard work. It's hard work when you're at a pizza restaurant, you know, in Italy, and you can't eat it. That's really hard. Or if somebody opens an incredible bottle of wine, but you know you can't drink it. It's terrible. You know, now I'm able to do everything. Now I eat pizza, pasta, drink wine whenever I want, and it's the best. <laughs> I'm very lucky. I'm very grateful. So so what role does Lyme play in your life at all these days, health-wise? Advocacy. <laughs> That's amazing. Advocacy and helping people. You know, for me... It's about the amount of sleep I get. It was so funny. My husband's uh, family, we were on a group text, and his sister said, you know, here's this proven thing, because she likes to sleep late. Here's this proven thing, guys, that sleeping late is actually really healthy, and it does has all these benefits and blah, blah, blah. And I texted back, and I said, well, I go to sleep early, I sleep late, and I take naps, so you don't have to convince me. <laughs> I mean, and sleep is the number one. And taking stress away. As much as possible. I mean, you know, it's difficult to eliminate stress because life is stressful and family is stressful and work is stressful and situations are stressful. But to learn how to navigate situations a bit differently just means changing the perspective. And I kind of have this analogy of having these different colored um, glasses and lenses, which I wear. I wear a lot of pink or yellow or blue lenses. It's not just because they look cool. I don't like do it for <laughs> some special reason. But it kind of goes back to the analogy is we really do have a choice about what perspective and how we can have the power to change our perspective. And so if a situation is coming up and it feels a little stressful or a little this or a little that, I think, okay, what can I do to change the lenses? I discovered through also this whole health experience that I really do have the power to change my mental outlook. And it's very simple. Sometimes it means faking it till you make it. Sometimes it means writing down a sentence that you wish was true that, that really isn't, isn't so. For example, you know, I, I intend and create now that I'm having the best day in my life so far, that everybody is forgiving and kind and loving, and that I'm making decisions that benefit myself and everybody else. Now, whether that is true or not, I am starting to manipulate my subconscious mind. And when I start manipulating my subconscious mind on a daily basis, whether it was, you know, in the beginning, it was I'm healthy and healing every single day. I'm getting healthier and healthier every day. My body is strong and rejuvenating. Even though I did not feel that that was the case, I actually started manipulating my subconscious mind so well that it started tricking my body and my conscious brain. So now when people ask the question that you asked, how does Lyme play a role in your life? And, you know, do you still have Lyme disease? Are you Lyme-free? I say, yes, Lyme disease no longer lives in my body. It's no longer welcome. And I live a very healthy, full life. Now, every day is different. In all honesty, every day is different. And, you know, yesterday I had a headache. I didn't feel great, but, like, I took a nap and drank some water, you know, and played with my child. So... I don't need to 
bring things to such extreme anymore. And I don't, you know, I freaked out before. If I didn't feel well, I would just like flip out and freak out because it was like PTSD. And I've gone through something where I did like the, this ozone therapy a while ago. Where you basically stick a tube up your ass and fill it with the air. <laughs> And I, you know, it was so great. And I had the machine and everything. It was so great. It was so great. It was so fabulous. I mean, I did not like sticking that thing up. Trust me. I was like, <laughs> breathe. <laughs> that or needles? Which do you oh, prefer? I would rather the tube. <laughs> Forget the needles. Anyway, I did it, but it actually flared me up a little bit. So I went through kind of an intense two-week Herxheimer, and it was, like, really scary. But, you know, it just it eliminated Things I was doing in my life work-wise that I necessarily didn't need to do. It's interesting how your your body kind of helps communicate with your – your body communicates with your brain and starts rejecting unneeded, unwanted things. And I'm very aware of that. I'm very tuned in to what that is. So it sounds like you don't deprive yourself of food these days. Not anymore. And you enjoy life and <laughs> you do, do what you want to do. Are there any non-negotiables other than sleep? You know, I well, I can't, you know, I can't have too much sugar. So, you know, too much sugar, lack of sleep, too much stress. I don't eat eggplant to, or tomatoes. Nightshades. I have a little tomato sauce sometimes, but nightshades. I mean, I have sometimes tomatoes, but really the eggplant, no, it's the nightshades because they're so inflammatory. So I do stay away from that. And I just, I live a very full life and I don't do anything in excess, in extremes. I think that that's really important. I mean, thank God I'm not like a sugarholic or, you know, an alcoholic or anything like a pot, you know, whatever it is. Like I'm pretty balanced. You can dabble. I'm lucky, you know, but I think that, you know, on vacation, I go nuts on vacation, I'm like, give me everything. It's so much fun. And then afterwards, I'm like, okay, we're going to tune it down and dial it back. What role does health play in your daughter's life in raising her? I teach her breathing and um, how to acknowledge how she's feeling and her emotions and to listen to her body. So I don't believe in forcing kids to eat. If her body is telling her that she's hungry, then she'll eat. If it's mealtime and she's absolutely not hungry, if she doesn't want to finish her plate, I do not force. I don't think that's healthy. So um, my husband and I are very in tune to her rhythm and her needs. Um, And listen, if she's needing to rest and not do an activity that we've planned or whatever, I'll keep her home and I'll cancel. So I think I'm teaching her how to value her instincts, listen to her body, listen to her stomach respect the fact that she might need to rest some days more than others and and that's okay when we were talking before we started recording you were saying that patients get sent to you all the time Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about what that's been like and why people are being sent your way well people have read my book and they think oh my gosh she has the magic secret she got better she must know the, the places to go and the people to see to get better and really what I speak to them about is, is this thing of, of making a decision of whether or not you want to get healthy and being daring enough to look at yourself in the mirror every single morning and saying, I love you. And I'm getting healthier every day and writing down five things that you're grateful for every morning when you wake up and every night before you go to bed, uh, teaching them the writing exercises, 
making the decision to change their diet, um, learning how to incorporate meditation. So I start the patients off very slow with in terms of, you know, you, you can't like overwhelm them be like, you can't eat this ever again. Or you've got to meditate every day. Is this just like sort of being a mentor to them? I mean, you're not like getting paid to do this. It's just out of the kindness of your heart and trying to help other people. It's giving back because if I had known these tools, if I was given these tools early on, I wouldn't have gone through what I went through. Now, some people aren't ready and that's okay. And some people want the magic doctor and the magic solution and will pay anything to get that. But it's not going to work unless they're incorporating these tools because these tools that I've learned... These are the magic tools. It is the magic wand. I have it. It's just, are you willing to understand that it is for free? Are you willing to understand that it is very, very simple? And are you willing to understand that you have to do it every single day? So unless they're ready to do that, then I really can't help them. I can send them to the best doctors in the world and they still won't get better. So what's it like when people don't follow that path that you've suggested. How do you feel about that? I say, call me when you're ready. Call me when you're ready. Good luck. I'm here when you need me. And call me when you're, <laughs> I mean, I have this one woman I and I really, I, I'm not like a mean person, but I kind of like, I was like, call me when you're ready to let go of being a victim. And it was really hard for her to hear. But, uh, she put me in touch with her son and he was ready to hear everything because he was very, very sick as well. But it's hard when it goes neurological and it kind of starts messing with you mentally. That's difficult because your brain is telling you all these things and you have anxiety and you can't sleep and you start going a little nuts. It's like it kind of makes you a little, little can make you a little wacky. Yeah. And the things that I'm providing them with these tools sound wacky to maybe the, the sort of average person. But that's fine. They'll, they'll learn one day that these are tools that is the magic wand. And I think that there are things that are becoming much more mainstream these days. It's taking time. I mean, I've talked on the podcast about how my mom ran a holistic health care center when I was in high school. Oh, wow. And that was so out there mm-hmm. in 2001. Mm-hmm. It was right before 9-11. And it was just like, wait, your mom runs what? What do they do there? Yeah. Reiki? What's that? Yeah. So it was something I was always exposed to and she was always interested in, but it wasn't something we really talked about because it seems so kooky. So kooky, yeah. And now it's becoming more mainstream, but there's certainly plenty of people who are really resistant and not willing to realize that it can really heal you. Exactly. It can really save people's lives and not knocking traditional medicine because I think it serves its own purpose. Mm-hmm. But figuring out what's right for you. And I think the questions that you suggested are huge ones for people to consider Mm -hmm. in figuring out if they're ready to take this path. Mm -hmm. You were interviewed on Goop and you said you wish people would never blame a patient for being sick. Mm. Can you share a little bit about what your experience was with that and why you said such a thing? Absolutely. Well, you know, it was very scary when, when when you're a child and a teenager and you're not really believed. You know, they think, oh, you're exa- she's exaggerating or she, the joint payment is not that bad or I'm sure she could function or I'm sure she can do this or that. Or when I kept getting sick in my 20s after going on treatments and I'm sure people were like, my God, can't she just get better already? You know, can't she just buck up and just get over it, get on with it? And of course, that was going through my own head. Um, but when... People are judging an illness that they can't physically see. And I mean, I did lose a lot of hair, by the way, 
But I'm sure if all of it had come out, they would have seen it and they would have believed it. Or if I, you know, if I broke out into like a major rash all over my body and my eyelashes fell out and my fingernails turned black, then they would think, oh, wow, yeah, that's bad. But that's one of the many challenges with invisible the illness. Invisible illness. The, the invisible illness. It's just, it's so sad. It's so sad because, you know, you just really never know what somebody's going through. And, you know, and, and listen, there were times where I was able to completely fake it and get out of bed and show up to a place and, like, pretend to be okay for an hour and then go home and, like, completely shut down for, like, three days. And no one saw that. I mean, who wants to have people come visit you when you're, like, sick and throwing up and, like, it's not cool. It's not cute. So for somebody to not believe a sick person is one of the cruelest things I have ever heard of. So, I mean, I think that that's going to eventually change in our society since particularly Lyme disease is one of the, it's actually the fastest growing infectious disease epidemic in our country right now. It is a true epidemic. It was faster growing than AIDS was in the 80s. So it's it's a big problem we're having and the, the doctors are not as educated. The tests are very archaic. There is no pharmaceutical out there that it's like a one cure all. And... um people are sick and scared and suffering and desperate. And I'm I'm glad that I have the book to offer them some hope and a little laughter because I, I wrote it in a very humorous way. But um, some, some tools and some solutions to help so, sort of see the light. And showing them today, being a power of example, you know, me going back into designing now, I have my little collection series eight. Uh, it's very small. It's very manageable. But to show people that I'm doing what I love, no matter what, and I really did get through the darkness. And even if I'm not having a great day, it's okay. That's normal. Nobody has perfect days. But that I'm able to still do what my heart loves. Um, and everybody can get there. You can get there. It, it takes a lot of work and a lot of time. It doesn't necessarily have to take as much money as my family spent, by the way. You know, I think the people are going to think, oh, well, of course, she's fine now. Of course, she's living that great life because her family had so much privilege and they could go to any doctor and afford any treatment. But there are treatments out there. Local homeopaths. Diets you can do. You can go to an infrared sauna for $15. I mean, there are things that are out there that you can do. You just have to find them and be disciplined. So, you know, you don't have to have a million dollars to get better. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, when you think about meditation, you mentioned transcendental meditation, which is what I practice, mm -hmm. and I'm the biggest advocate for it and send everyone to the David Lynch Foundation. Mm -hmm. But there are so many other resources if you can't afford to spend the money that they charge for that. And there's books and there's apps and there's so many different routes you can take. So I think it's important to figure out in your gut mm -hmm. what feels right for you. And like you said, going to doctors and seeing these different healers this is a great sign. I feel good about this person or it's not the right fit for me. Yeah. And to not force anything. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really, you know, it may work for someone else. That doesn't mean it's the right fit for you. Right. Exactly. So how can people learn more about you, get a copy of your book and connect with you? Um, I have a website, AllieHillfigure.com, and you can connect. There's a link to buy the book from there. There are photos that my husband put up. <laughs> <laughs> to show the creative bandwidth, I suppose. Um, 
I'm on Instagram, Allie Hilfiger. I have a Facebook, Allie Hilfiger Official, I think that one is. I'm not sure. And, you know, I, I'm not very good at checking my DMs, but um, when I do, I try to reply to as many as possible. And, you know, the book you can get on I mean, Amazon, any, anywhere, really. I really hope that people go to that appendix part of the book because that's where those writing exercises are. And that's the most valuable part of that book. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me and for being in New York on this cold, cold day. Oh, I'm grateful to be here, Harper. Thank you. Of course. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.